You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. That's it. My title of my message this morning is God's Judgment on the Middle Class Christianity. So that's not exactly a warm and you know fuzzy kind of exciting thing, but 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 hold, hang with me for a second. As, as we're walking through this series on the minor prophets, these were these guys are kind of infamous. Uh, they, they stuck out. They drew attention. Have you ever noticed that there's a lot of articles, that headlines that you read? that are, They're just clickbait. They just want you to click on it, and they say something sensational. You know, see the shark that, you know, almost ate the kid or whatever. And, you know, you're like, oh, really? I want to see that. And you, you click on it, and you read it. That's kind of what the prophets were like. They were strange dudes. They did weird things. And they were kind of God saying, hey, you need to come check this out because God was trying to get the attention of people. All right. And so Amos was one of those guys. And uh, he was a kind of a backwoods guy, kind of a farmer minding his own business in the area of Judah. And God called him to Israel, to the, to the big city, if you will, to, to speak to the, the people up there. And uh, consequently, he had a pretty rough message to share but it's a message that you and I need to hear, and that, and that simply is this, that God is not often impressed with our middle-class version of Christian faith. He's not really impressed with that. I mean, let's, let's be real. The, the biggest difficulty that most of us in this room face, you know, when we think about food is, is which store do I want to go to today? You know, most of us aren't facing crushing poverty. Most of us have not lived in a world where there's just been an absolute famine, that nobody has food. We've not lived through a, a horrific drought. Most of us haven't woken up to, you know, wondering if today's the day that our family's going to be ripped apart and persecuted because of our faith. I mean, let's be honest. We really do live in a very first world. We're kind of the first world of the first world, right? Uh, here, not just the U.S., but here in the capital region. And, uh, and consequently, we're going to see that there are some risks that you and I have when we try to mesh our faith with that lifestyle. And Amos just kind of calls it like it is. He just, he says, guys, you just, you are full of yourselves and you're sitting around fat and sassy and just, you know, living large and you are totally missing the boat. So read with me, if you would, just a couple of verses to kind of set the tone. And I want to share with you how our worship, there's three areas that we need to be careful with, our worship of God and how it sinks in with our, with our, our faith, our comfortable Christian faith, if you will. So look at the book of Amos. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't have it or can't find it this morning, it'll be on the screen. So read with me in, in Amos chapter 3. I'm going to read the first couple of verses, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 11. Amos says this, Hear this word, that the Lord has spoken against you, not for you, against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families in the earth. God reminds Israel, look, they're, the world is filled with all kinds of families, and you're, you're my family. You're the only one that I've revealed myself to in such a way. And you know me, and I've known you. Because of that, there's a higher level of accountability. 
Because of that, there's a higher level of relationship. Now look what he says. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities, all your sins, all your misdeeds, all your rules that you've broken, all of the promises that you've broken, the things that you have done that I've told you not to do. Because you're my family, I'm going to punish you, he says. And look in verse 11. Therefore, I'm kind of cutting to the chase on this. You can read it when you get home. Verse 11, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. This is not good news. This is bad news. Get the picture of Israel. Israel is much like we are in the capital region. Have you? I don't know if you've noticed or picked up on it. I'm not an economist uh, at all, and, and I don't keep up with the real estate market and all of that. But have you noticed the last few years how many new buildings are going up in the area, how areas around the capital region, they didn't look so good that all of a sudden are looking nice, you know? It's just, there's just been a lot of construction. We are obviously living in a really good time right now. We survived the, was it the Great Recession or whatever it was called back, you know, in the early 2000s when the markets were crazy and the real estate was, got up so high and then it crashed and all of that. Uh, we, are, we are living in a time much like Israel. They were very prosperous. They lived in a time of great security. There was a time where people were amassing wealth and everybody was shooting for a life of, of, uh, uh, of ease and comfort and, and just trying to, to have the good life, if you will. In the middle of that, it completely messed up their spiritual faith. So because they were God's children and God's family, God sends them a prophet. One, because he loved them and he wanted to point out the messes that they were in. When we read the Old Testament, we read so many of these judgments, it's easy to say, oh my goodness, where's the, where's the warm and fuzzy unicorns and rainbows here? You know, like, God, don't you love me? And why aren't you being all nice and tender? And, and we read the judgment, I'm against you and all of this. And we say, God, what's the deal? Here's the deal. God does love us, but because He loves us, He holds account, us accountable for his act, our actions, and He lets us know when we're really messing up. That's actually a statement of love. You know, if you've got a worker on an assembly line making cars, and they make them wrong, and the airbags go off when they're not supposed to, and you know it, it's not love to that person, or those people are going to drive that car if you just say, oh, I'm going to be really loving to that person. I don't want to make them feel bad. I'm just going to let them keep doing it wrong. That's not love. Love says, hey, I know you're trying your best. This isn't cool. we got to fix this. And that's what God is doing in all of these prophets. So God is coming to Israel because he loves them. And he's reaching down to them. Consequently, there are three major risks that you and I face that God, tells, uh, God through Amos tells the people of Israel. Three, three things that are very specific to really middle class people, people who... You know, well, Sean, I struggle. I'm not sure if I, you know, I lost my job. I got to make my payments. I get it. But we're not talking third world problems. We're talking first world problems. We're talking, do I want a Honda or do I want a Toyota? We're talking, do I want a raised ranch to live in or do I want to live in a colonial? Do I want to, you know, that's the kind of world. And that's the world that, that, that uh, Amos is talking to. So the first thing I want you to recognize is the first big pitfall is when our worship does not match our faith. When our worship doesn't match the things that we believe, the things that we live out day to day in our life. Look at Amos chapter 5, verse 18. 
Amos has nine chapters. We're not going to read all nine chapters. We're not even going to look at all nine chapters. And I'm just kind of summarizing the kind of the core passages and kind of giving you a taste of them. But look what Amos says in chapter 5, verse 18. He says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? You see, these were people, they had mixed a clear faith in God, Ten Commandments kind of of faith, that believed in only God and put away all other idols. And then later on in life, they had mixed in other idols. We'll look at a couple of them in a minute, other gods that they followed. And so they had kind of intermixed their faith. It's kind of like when you make a cake from scratch. Uh, I only know this by watching. I don't think I've ever once in my life made a cake, not even a box mix. I don't even think I have. So then it is not on my bucket list, just so you know. And I feel no guilt about it whatsoever. I'm just being a man of integrity and honesty. I just don't make cakes, So among many other things. So anyway, but I've watched it. You know, you pour the stuff in, and you put it all in, and you put it in a big blender, and hit high, and it goes, right? That's kind of what the, they were doing with their faith. They were taking a little bit of, taking a little bit of this, or I like a little bit of that, and I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Very much what our world is doing today. Well, I, I like this idea of meditation. I'm going to put this in here. I like a little bit of this. Well, I believe in God. Well, I'm going to make my God is like this, and we just kind of bake our own cake. And consequently, they said, oh, but we really want the day of the Lord to come because we love God, and it's going to be a great day. And God is saying... You're crazy. If I show up in your house, this is not going to be good. This is going to be bad. This is not going to be a day of excitement. It's going to be a day of a judgment. There are many, even in our country, in our Christian circles, that say, oh, we want God to bring revival and bring revival. I'm not sure that we're truly ready for God to show up. I'm not sure that God, but what God is looking at us and saying, yeah, if I can't show up, i got some pretty strong things to say to you guys. And you're not ready to handle it. See, they had mixed their faith. Their worship of God did not match the things that they were doing. Look further what he says. He says, I hate, in verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. These were religious celebrations, all for God. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. These are special days that they would pull aside together and say, Oh God, we're going to worship you. We're going to pour our heart out to you. They were their special music days. And God says, I hate that stuff. I hate your worship. He says, even though you offer me, in verse 22, your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. The peace offerings of your fatted animals, I'm not even going to look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. and the, uh, To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. They nauseate me in effect. You see, their worship didn't match their faith for two reasons. He goes on in verse 25, he says this. Two reasons, I'll give them to you. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, the answer to that is no. So God doesn't always need that stuff. He says, you take up Sikhuth, your king, and Kayun, your star god, these are astral star deities that they that people had invented. He says, you follow these other gods and your images that you made for yourselves, 
and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. There were two reasons why their worship didn't match their faith, that nauseated God and was bringing God's judgment on them. Two reasons. One, it wasn't according to truth. They were holding on to God, and they were holding on to other idols and other things that they were trying to trust in to give them hope and a future and a security. You see, they were trusting in these other deities for their security, for their financial wealth. They were looking to them. Much like people today would look to, you know, their astrology. Oh, I got to read my horoscope to see what, you know, is, is this a good person to line up with me and what I should do? But yet that same person would be sitting in a church and praying to God. God's like, You're, you have totally messed up your faith. You either hold on to me or you don't have any of me. They blended and mixed their faiths completely together. And then the second thing, so it wasn't according to the truth. And then the second thing that they did is they really thought they could manipulate God. Their concepts of God. There was, we don't have the time to read all of the passage here, but uh, if we did, you would begin to be able to draw out is that the part of the worship they had, they believed in a fertility God. And as a part of this fertility God, they would practice fertile sexual rites, if you will. Can you imagine a guy, hey, honey, I got to go to church tonight. And the wife's like, why do you got to go see her? Well, honey, it's my duty. Somebody's got to go to it. They had temple prostitutes. And the whole idea was that they would reenact the fertility rites, and that was what would ensure their crops to grow and the rain to come, and they were trusting these other gods. So that's not truth, by the way, all right? I don't think you ladies would stand for that, but it's crazy that systems could be invented that people would begin to believe that junk. Well, if we look around to the religious systems being invented today, there's a whole lot of weird junk out there as well, so we need to kind of look down at ourselves. So they weren't following truth, but the second thing was, and this is subtle, but they thought they could manipulate God. They thought that they could make God do in heaven what they wanted done on this earth. You know, there's a lot of us that struggle with that, and if I'm being honest, I want God to do what I want Him to do, when I want Him to do it, how I want Him to do it, and the way that I want it done, and in the color I want, too. <laughs> and they were trying to manipulate God. And God says, I can't stand your worship. All of the stuff that God told them to do, to burn offerings and all of this stuff, he said, that's not what I'm looking for. Their faith, the things that they believed and the way they lived out their Christian life didn't match what they were doing on Sundays. It's easy for you and me in our Christian faith, in our middle-class Christian faith, to on one hand, you know, say we believe the Bible or one hand believe in God, but on the other hand, trust in other things doesn't have to be an actual star God. It could be anything else around us. But trusting and putting our security in those things or even trying to manipulate God to get Him to do what we really want on this earth. And God says, I can't stand that stuff. Second thing that, that God looks at us and examines our faith, a, a landmine, if you will, is not just a worship that doesn't match our faith, but a, a worship that doesn't match our lifestyle. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Woe to those 
who are at ease in Zion. You're at ease. You're living the big life. To those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go down to verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. Bed of ivory would be highly opulent. It would be in our day. It was definitely in their day too. You stretch yourselves out on your couch. You eat lambs from the flock. In other words, you're doing so well financially, you don't eat the old sheep that tastes terrible and is stringy that's, you know, five years old. You want that fresh meat. And you're, you're living in such opulence that you can afford to do that. You know, I only eat the best cuts of meat, if you will. And you, eat, and you who eat calves from the middle of the stall, verse 5, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, you invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls. In other words, you've got such a life of luxury. Wine was a, a delicacy, a luxury, if you will. And you're just, rather than having a little bit of it, you know, you, you're chugging it. You know, it's just you're drinking it by the bowlful. Uh, a gallon at a time. It's not an issue of drunkenness. It's an issue, what he's talking about here, it's an issue of, of opulence, of, of excess. And they anoint themselves with the finest oils in verse 6, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. I'll come back to that in a minute. They're not grieved. What God is telling them is like, you guys are so pursuing the good life that your whole focus is that and not on God. Your faith doesn't match your lifestyle. Now let's all be honest. We like to be comfortable. Anybody here like hot showers? I, I'm not, not kidding, not exaggerating. A hot shower to me is like one of the two or three wonders of the world. I mean, for real. It just, there's nothing quite like getting into a shower and taking a hot shower. My, what, how many of you agree with me? Some of you are looking at me like I'm weird. I'm just, I got in the shower this morning. I'm just like, oh, this feels so good. You know, it's awesome. I get it. We like comfort. We, we like things that are nice. You know, it's kind of funny that I'm preaching this sermon in the middle of us remodeling our church. You're like, Sean, so you're like, uh, Pastor, you know, you ought to look around. You're trying to, if you want to know what this wall is going to look like, it's going to look like what's down here on the stage. So we got a whole pile of that stuff that's going to go up here in a couple of weeks. So, so we want comfort. We want beauty. We want all the stuff that money can buy. And we plot and we plan and we Get, make sure our kids get into the right schools and do all the stuff and, so that they can have and have the good life and all of that. God's talking to us right now. You may not have a bed made of ivory, um, but he's talking to us with what our whole focus and what we want most in life. And God is saying, your lifestyle doesn't match your faith. Well, Sean, does that mean I need to go be a monk and I need to go get a little brown robe, you know, and, and, and live on the street? No. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying where are your priorities and how does your lifestyle match your faith? I am asking you to examine that today. And I'm asking you to relook because as Christians, we oftentimes just follow the world around us because that's what we do. And that's what we're supposed to do. 
And God calls us to a different culture. He calls us to something different in our faith. I'll give you an example of how this has lived out in my life. Uh, when, when Susan and I moved back here to the capital region, moved the second time, uh, this was about 15 years ago, and we're, we're, we bought the house that we're in now. It was literally the only home that I saw that we could afford um, in a 10-county radius. I mean, not, not exaggeration. It was 2004. Houses were going for way more than what they were on the market. People are getting into bidding wars. You listed your house today, there'd be five people trying to buy it, and the prices were going up. Rather than coming down, they were going up. It was insane. And, uh, and because I had eight kids, I had never owned a home before, first-time home buyer. I didn't have equity stepping into that. I was a pastor in ministry, and, and I was living in a parsonage. And bottom line, all of those are like three strikes against me. I couldn't get in a home I could afford. So we got in the only home that a, a person helped us out, uh, unbelievably so financially. And so we have five bedrooms, our home. Many, if not most, of you have been at my house. Outside, it looks incredible. Inside, oh my goodness, the whole thing needed to be redone and everything. I've replaced every mechanical. I even put in a leech field and, and all kinds of stuff inside of it. But it, it has one major flaw, if you will. It has five bedrooms and only one full bath and a little half bath. So I have lived for the last 14 years sharing a shower with I mean, six women, okay? <laughs> Only once my wife, but six women. And right off the bat, I said, and, and, and we have space. If you saw my bedroom, those of you that have been in my house, my, that big toy room that we have downstairs is a mirror image. My bedroom is that size upstairs. And right on the other side of one wall is another bathroom. So that, what that means is I have space for a master bathroom, and I have all the plumbing right there, easy to tie into but I lack money to finish that off, and I have. When we first moved there, I thought, oh, this is an absolute need. I have to have two full baths, two and a half baths for all my family. Well, fast forward a few years, uh, I went from this is an absolute need to, well, I feel like it's still a need to, well, I guess we're making do. You should see us, like Sunday morning, there'll be three of us, and our bathroom upstairs, it's not a big bathroom. It's, a, it's not tiny, but it's small. And there will be three of us lined up, one sink, not double sink, one sink, uh, one shower for the last 15 years. Uh, challenging. You, you try to repair a, a, a shower, try to do any work in a bathroom knowing you have to get it done by the end of that day or you're cooked. Like, you have to. Like, nope, no pressure, right? But I watched. As I sit back now, I went from, God, this is an absolute need. We have to do this to, okay, I guess it's not going to happen, to where we would complain and be miserable for not having a second bath with all of our kids and teenage daughters growing up. And can't tell you how, ladies, I love you, but your hair really clogs bathroom, shower, a lot. Just, I'll just say that. And you ladies, if you're smart, like, yeah, and if you've got three dudes shaving in the kitchen, in the bathroom sink, it plugs up the sink too. So we each have our own, right? But I went from complaining to then feeling sorry for myself to like, oh, you know, we're sacrificing. And, and to now where I've gotten to the point where, and it's taken about 15 years, where I'm like, it's really no big deal. It truly is no big deal at all. Most of us in this world, we set a standard that we expect to live in. We have to have this. And we watch all the remodeling shows that make us feel bad about what we have. Thank you very much. I could mention some names, and I almost did, but I'm not poking at them. But all that stuff creates us wanting more and more and more. And God says, I'm not impressed with your middle-class Christian faith. I'm so not impressed. You're at ease. 
and, and, and you're, you're living large in a way. Does that mean that we're more spiritual and godly for poor? No. But it, it means that you and I should place our values on something way more than all of that. All of that stuff, when we gripe and grumble and complain because of what we don't have, guess what? Our biggest value is placed on that stuff and not God. We should live differently. The world around us, I'll give you a second one. The world around us tells us that we should save for our kids for college. Um, this is, do not follow this financial advice, but Susan and I have never saved a penny for our kids at college. I, we just haven't. Could we have? Probably a, a, some. Not a lot. Wouldn't gotten very far with eight kids. You know, it'd be like taking a little pee and cutting it eight ways. It just, you know, we, thankfully we live in the capital region and say there are great schools around here and we will help you get through school with scholarships. You're going to have to work and we'll give you free room and board, but you're going to have to make do. Forget living on campus. You're just going to make it work. And they have. Uh, praise God. But you know what we have saved for? And the world tells us that we should do all of that. What Susan and I have saved for, we actually have saved to send our kids on mission trips internationally. Why? Because I want my kids to care about people. I want them to care about the world. I want to care about the world more than just making their, their way and having and doing and, you know, for ourselves. So, Sean, are you telling us that's exactly what we should do? No, I'm not. Either one of those. But I'm saying you need to examine your life. And if your life doesn't look different financially, your lifestyle isn't different than the world around us, then I'm at least suggesting, if not strongly nudging you, that there's probably some things in there that God wants to talk to you about to where you've stepped on a landmine that they're doing. Because God wants our life about Him. And He wants our life coming out of Him to be about people. To, to be about people. Now here's what will happen when you and I desire all of that ease and good life. In the process, we forget about God. We make even our religious service, we go to God just so we can have stuff. There's a lot of Christians out there who make that. And they've even toured into the capital region and played down at the Pepsi. Is it the Pepsi now or the Knickerbocker? I remember the Knickerbocker, the Times Union. Is it the Times Union or the Pepsi? Times Union, all right, shows you the time. So they play through into the Times Union. And it's all basically go to God because he can just make your life not only just peaceful, but you can have all the money you want, which is ridiculous. That's actually the problem here. They were trying to manipulate God into that. So don't do that. The, the, the other thing that it does, when you and I put wanting all of that stuff, the easy life, the, the always having the new car smell or always having the perfect house or the perfect clothes or to be in the style and all of that, is that it ultimately means we stop caring for people the way that we should. We stop caring for people. That's why the verse that I mentioned a minute ago when the Bible says in, in chapter 5, verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What God wants from your life and my life is for us to be a people who are just, who are righteous, who do just things. Look at chapter 4. Now, hold on to your seats a little bit, ladies, all right? Um, look what chapter 4 says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Just relax. Bashan was a region in, in the area. And who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Wait a minute, Sean. He just said cows, and he's, and he's referring to husbands. He's talking about the women, yes, he is. 
I'm not calling you that, and God's not necessarily calling you that. I'm too smart to even get within a million miles of that. But let me tell you, for all of us, here, here's the reason I'm pointing it out. Their opulence of just laying around and wanting to have all of the finery. And they're doing it, and in the end, they are oppressing the poor, and they're crushing the needy. And they're actually, what he says, like demanding the husband serve them too, but I'm focusing on the poor and the needy. Here's the deal. When you make your priority of getting the best deal possible and having all of this stuff, you begin to step on other people. You begin to. There's no two ways around it. And that's what they were doing. They, they, their worship did not match their obedience. You see, what God calls us to is to what we saw in the little video a minute ago is to love other people. He calls us to know him, to love him, and for him to change our life through Jesus. And when he does that, our second priority is to love other people. And when you and I place having all of the whatever, you know, we making our lifestyle work to, to prop up our lifestyle so we can keep up with everything that we see on Facebook and all the remodeling videos and everything around us, we begin to then step on either by, ignorant, by ignoring them or actually unintentionally begin crushing the poor and the needy. You see, they were... They had people in servitude to prop up their lifestyle. Well, Sean, we don't have slaves. I seriously doubt any of you guys have slaves at home. There has been an instance or two in just the last couple of years of people having a slave locked in closets in the capital region. People of wealth, horrible, horrible. Slavery and sex slavery, all of that, a reality all around us, folks. But what it means that you and I need to be careful is that we care for the people around us, financially have a need, and we live in our life in a way that doesn't continue to push that down. Let me give you two thoughts. We were here this week and uh, doing a lot of work, and uh, I don't remember, I was over in this corner somewhere putting up mud or sanding or something, and, and somebody said, Pastor, there's a homeless person here that needs some help. So I went and, and met a, a woman who'd walked in the door, and um, talked to her a little bit and kind of heard her story and, um, and, and helped her. Um, she was waiting on a friend across the, she was trying to meet somebody at the motel across the street and gave her a cup of tea and helped her do some search. And I got to hear a little bit. She was looking for a place to live and all of that. Um, and uh, after she left, uh, one of our uh, younger church family members came and said, what, what did she want? And I said, well, she, didn't have a, she doesn't have a regular place to stay, and I think she's looking to figure that out, some help. And the little person walked away, and then they came back and said, well, where does she sleep? And I said, well, that's a really good question. Uh, that's really sad, isn't it? I'm not exactly sure where she is, is, is sleeping. Um, and uh, and we, we talked through that a little bit more. I'm glad she didn't ask me the really hard question, why is she homeless or how do we fix that problem? You know, much more difficult conversation. But God instinctively in this little child put the care and the interest in a person's heart. You know, first thing she thought of is, you know, what, what does this person have? 
that should be in all of our hearts, guys, uh, around us. Now, thankfully, and, and, and just so you know how it works in our areas, anyone who's homeless or needing a place to stay, you go through so Department of Social Services, and then they get referred forward. So we did our homework, and I pointed her to that direction. And, you know, they have some rules along the way that, you know, if you break them, you kind of miss out on that. So anyway, we helped her to the, the level and degree that we could. So I'm just using that as an example, this little child. Um, God puts that in our heart. And if, if you and I aren't careful, we wake up every day thinking about how to improve and feather our nest. And we ignore the world right around us. And today, that just, I mean, we, they literally, are, people are here in need. People are in other areas in need. And God is so not impressed with, with Christian faith that ignores all, all of that. I did tell the young girl, I said, by the way, that's why we help two wonderful ministries in our area, City Mission and Schenectady and the Capital uh, City Rescue in Albany, two world-class ministries, Christian that just do a great job ministering, helping the whole person. I said, and every time your family gives to the church and we give to the church, a portion of that goes to help because we care about people like that who are you know, uh, in touch and in tune and have those opportunities because we want to be a church that cares. But guys, we have to take care of that. It's our responsibility. Uh, another piece to that, I don't want to go far down that road, this road, because I haven't vetted it enough to know if I fully understand it or agree with it, and I'm not sure, but I like at least the attempt. Have you ever heard of fair trade? You ever heard of like fair trade coffee, fair trade chocolate, fair trade clothes, all of that? You know, if you're always after the best deal, there's always some country in the world that's willing to step on other people and put them in slave indentured slavehood so that they can produce really cheap polo shirts or give you decent coffee at a ridiculously reduced price. So if you and I have our highest good to always have the very best deal, because why? We want to make more money so we can have more stuff ourselves. We inevitably will be funding and resourcing those countries, those institutions, those people that are truly putting people in, in slavery. Sean, do you mean you're vetting everything that you buy? No, I'm not. I don't truly know how to do that. But I like the idea, and increasingly I say, I like the fact that I'm buying from people or from a country or from a place that I know is treating people properly. And my goal in life is not to get the best deal. My goal in life is to love people and be respectable to people regardless of who they are, where they are, or what they do. My goal in life is not to get the biggest and best of everything, guys. That's a shift that, that we ought to take seriously. Amos is a book for us. It's a book for people who are living who are in prosperity, who's allowed their Christian faith to just become watered down and to make their whole world those other things. So what's the antidote? I'm so glad you asked that question, and I'm almost done. Look what he says in verse 5. There's always hope. Whenever God, always look at this, whenever God says something hard and punches you in the face, it's because we're hard of hearing and he says, listen, but there's always hope. Look what he says in chapter 5, verse 4. He says, seek me and live. Look what he says in verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. He tells us that we should seek him. He says, look. Look for me. Don't seek all that other stuff. Pursue me and live. He says, by the way, if you don't, in verse 6, I'm going to send a fire. <laughs> it says, lest 
the Lord, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph. That's what happens when the day of the Lord comes and we're not living as we should. God comes and there is a loss and there is pain and there is suffering because we're not living out our faith consistent with what we say we believe. And God says, and because I love you, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to come to you. So seek the Lord. This is not the first time that God tried to get their attention. Not the first time at all. If you look in chapter 4, this is so amazing. He says, he says look in verse 6, he says, I gave you cleanness and teeth in all your cities. It's not that they had good dentistry. They didn't have anything to eat. They didn't have food left over. He said, look, you were poor. You had famine. In all your cities and lack of bread in your places, and yet you did not return to me. You know what God was doing? He says, look, what have I got to do to get your attention? I'm going to cut off the food so that you know these other false gods aren't giving it to you. And I want you to stop and look up to me for some answers. And you didn't listen. Verse 7, he says, I withheld the rain from you. And in verse 8, the end of that, yet you did not return to me. In fact, if you read 7 and 8, he says, I sent rain to this city and not this city. I sent rain to this field and not that field. Because I wanted the people who didn't get it to say, wait a minute, why do they have rain and I not? Oh, God, am I doing something wrong? Are you punishing me? Yeah, I am. Oh, forgive me, God. He wants our attention. He then he, he said, and look, I sent in verse 10, pestilence. Verse... Uh, Verse 11, I don't think you have it on the screen, but he says, I sent overthrew some of you. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew. And after every one of those, four or five times, yet you did not return to me. Yet you did not return to me. Here's my point to you. Sometimes when you and I have suffering and pain and hardship and difficulty, we lose our job or whatever, God is, really is judging us and He's saying, look, I just want you to pay attention. Sean, are you saying the difficulty I'm in right now is because I'm living a sinful life? No, not necessarily, but I am saying it might be. And you ought to stop and you ought to simply ask God, God, are you trying to get my attention? I think if God is big enough to make this world, He's big enough to answer that question. It's fair to ask God lots of questions. I encourage you to, I hope you to. I hope you do that for God to speak through His Word and speak truth into your life. It means that you and I, one of the things that we should consider, this has gotten really hard. God, is everything okay? He'll tell you. He wants our attention. He says, seek Him. So this morning, I have no idea how this is hitting. Jeremy's going to come up and lead us into a song, a response song. But I want to encourage you to take an inventory of your faith, of your worship. Does what you sing about and say you believe does it really match the things that you're doing? Does it match where you are financially? Does it match your care that you should have for other people? Do, does your worship really match your level of obedience to God and match your priorities in life? I'm not saying that you should go and sell your house and everything in it. But I'm saying you ought to be willing to if God wanted you to. Here's what, here's what happens when our, our worship doesn't match God. We have a cat. I'm, I truly will finish after the story. We have, a, we have three cats, not just one. I have at least one cat too many. But uh, I would have mutiny in my house if I tried to get rid of one of them. So you know how that works. Well, one of our cats got hit just a couple week, two, three weeks ago, three weeks or so ago, didn't come home. We didn't know what had happened for a couple of days. And then we, we 
found it kind of uh, really lame in our yard, and we took, her, took it to the vet, and no, I'm not paying $2,500 to have a leg amputated or $1,500 to have a, a hip removed and all of that. Okay, I, that cat's a pretty cool cat. So of all the three, that one I'm like, oh, no, I'm not doing it. The vets told us, actually two vets, Jeff Hughes as well, said, yeah, just leave it alone, it'll be fine. So the, 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 it broke its pelvis and it dislocated its hip. So three weeks later, I don't know how with a broken pelvis and a dislocated hip, you can jump off a bunk bed, but I have seen it. And the cat's getting it wrong and I'm just like, you are absolutely insane. Toughest creature I've ever seen in my life. So here's the illustration. You and I, when we truly surrendered our life to Jesus, and we've trusted Him to be Lord of our life. We're saved and forgiven, absolutely. But when we allow ourselves to try to live the middle-class world, we end up being that cat that walks with a limp. Spiritually, we're broken. Can we limp through the rest of our life that way? You bet. Is it the way God intended? Nope. Does it really look weird to God? Yep. Does it hinder us from doing some things we could have normally do? Yeah, my cat doesn't run. It walks. It walks pretty funny. Is it alive? Absolutely. Is it the way that God intended the life to be lived for that cat? Nope. And the same with us. So I'm challenging you. The Bible tells us that when we put the desire to be rich in this world, that we pierce ourselves through with many sorrows. It's self-inflicted wound. So consider your faith. Consider your worship. Consider the lifestyle that you're living. And are you really surrendering all of that to God? And is He really your priority? He says, seek me and live. Seek me and have a full life. Seek me and truly live life the way that I wanted. So before we take our Lord's Supper, as we sing this song, I'm going to give you some time to just meditate. This, as we participate in this supper, it is meant to be a, a time of worship and of glorifying to God, a time of purifying, of bringing our focus in to say, God, you are what's important. So I think Amos is a good way for us to do that. So I'm going to pray, and uh, you go ahead and stand. We're going to sing or pray or whatever you want to do. But as I do that, our ushers are going to come, and, and we're going to pass out our elements to worship together. So you stand, and let me pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus who died for us and loves us. Father, I thank you that you send truth to us. Lord, we all fall into that. I have so many times of subtly shifting my priority and my desires of life to my own self and the things that I want. Lord, thank you that you love us enough to confront us in that and to give us a word from Amos to remind us just what our priorities ought to be. Lord, it really is about you and it's about other people. I pray as a pastor of this church that you would help us to be a church just like that. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.